All right, everybody, we are going to try this one more time. I don't know exactly why this is dropping from the stream, but I'm going to do it a little bit different this way. Hopefully, you guys can pick up from there and uh, follow along with us. guys well I apologize for the technical difficulties but thank you for hanging in there with us um, we're gonna have a fun discussion tonight welcome to another episode of talking Christianity apologetics my name is Josh Gibbs and uh, here kind of on this channel what I'm trying to do is bring our theology into practicality I want the things that we think about God to really apply to our daily living and the way that I want to do that is to challenge the way that you think about God in a deeper way. And in doing so, you should be able to uh, be involved in the discussion tonight as well. So you'll have a chance uh, to get involved in the conversation with your questions at the end for our interlocutors, Chris Morrison and Will Duffy. As always, you can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and any other audio platforms that you might be uh, listening to. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe now. Help us to get over that 1,000 uh, sub mark, and feel free also to send in your questions to TalkingChristianityApologetics at gmail.com. If you have those, we get those from time to time. I have gotten those in the past. I've also got, in, uh, I've also got voicemails if you guys want to call in. Uh, there's a number that you can call, 816-366-9978. You can call in if you wanted to do that um, when it comes to the audience Q&A as well. Or you can leave a message for me personally and I'll get back to you uh, with whatever question you may have. Um, I've had some interesting voicemails um, in the past and some good conversations that those have led to. And, as well as on Facebook. You can reach me on Facebook. Um, and have conversations there. I enjoy the conversations. I enjoy, I enjoy the challenges. And really, that's kind of what I want to do is help have conversations like this one to bring you into the conversation, to challenge our beliefs, and to get Christians talking about God. So as we get into that tonight, keep in mind you can jump into the side chat, keep that side chat going, put in your questions. If you have a question for either Chris or Will, just put this is a question for Chris or a question for Will. 
and then your question beside that. And when we get to the audience q and I'll get to those questions. The audio, if you wanted to call in, you can do that. I'll put that number up on the, on the screen when we get to that as well. Uh, and you can also join the discussion, whatever works the best for you. But tonight we're going to challenge you in a way that should help you to think about God, challenge the way that you do think about God as it relates to God's discursive thought and his generated knowledge. So this is going to be a fun one tonight, um, whether God does have generated knowledge, whether God does have discursive thought. But we've got Will Duffy and Chris Morrison. Chris Morrison is in the center, Will Duffy on the right. Uh, welcome both of you guys to Talking Christianity. It's good to have you on tonight. And uh, Chris, um, this is your first time. Will, I've had you on before, but Chris, this is your first time. I'm glad to have you on, man. Hey, thanks for the invitation. I'm really excited to be Awesome. Well, good to have you back. It's been a while. I know uh, times are busy these days, but and, and we've been trying to get this one booked for a while. We started to have this conversation a couple months back, I think, but uh, we've got it back. We've got it booked. We're live, and we're going to have the conversation. So, Will, it's good to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Uh, glad to be back, and uh, have really been looking forward to this particular conversation. Awesome. So let's. I'll give you, the audience, kind of a brief introduction for both Will and Chris. Chris is married for almost 15 years. He has three young kids, 20 years of ministerial experience, including 10 years as a healthcare chaplain. Primary, uh, primary philosophical and theological interests would include theology proper, that is, the nature of God, metaphysics, apologetics, and practical theology. He runs Gulfside Ministries, uh, which has a blog at gulfsideministries.wordpress.com and a YouTube channel that you can find at Gulfside Ministries as well. Will, Will is married for uh, 17 years with five children. He's the pastor of Agape Kingdom Fellowship and operates opentheism.com. Um, I, I think that <clears throat> um, really, as we get into this conversation between Will and Chris, I think it's important for you and the audience to understand that we're trying to simplify some very complex ideas. Uh, some of those ideas that we're going to be talking about tonight are going to be divine simplicity, discursive thought, and generated knowledge. I included divine simplicity kind of as the overarching umbrella theme to the conversation because the main focus is going to be on discursive thought and generated knowledge as it's related to God. Um, we'll kind of talk about those things as we get into it, and I really want Will and Chris, you guys are going to carry the rest of the conversation as we go through here. I'm just going to kind of give an introduction and uh, follow along some bullet points to try to carry the conversation along, and if we need to spend some time on any given point that comes up, then we can do that. But first, I think when we look at divine simplicity, Dr. R.T. Mullins says, God lacks all physical and metaphysical composition. God has no parts or diversity in his essence. And a strong doctrine of immutability states that God does not undergo any kind of change. And he put this in his book, The End of the Timeless God, to describe what divine simplicity is. That doesn't mean that he adheres to or adopts divine simplicity, because I think that he actually rejects it with uh, some good, as a uh, neoclassical theist is what he calls it, but 
he, he has a lot of good thoughts in there on that. Chris Morrison says, God is not composed of parts of any kind. God has no past, present, or future. God simply is. And as it relates to divine simplicity, will you say, God does undergo change in the incarnation and in that he changes his mind throughout scripture. God is also temporal, making divine simplicity an unbiblical concept. Now, I think before we jump into discursive thought and kind of jump into the conversation and let you guys run with it, is there anything that you guys wanted to add or clarify as it relates to divine simplicity, kind of whether it is an umbrella term for what we're going to be discussing tonight? I'll just say real quick, uh, the general definitions are right. I don't want to get into it. We'll only bring it up if we absolutely have to. I think it does. It's more of, I would say, more around issue than an umbrella issue just as we get into the nature of God's existence. Uh, you mean, well, that's assuming so-and-so. That's right. That's in the background. So if it has to come up, it will. Um, we probably should stay with the subject as much as possible. But I think we're going to find, especially when we start talking about hermeneutics, that some of this stuff can't help but creep in regardless of your, um, your, your opinions one way or the other. Yeah. Well, do you have anything on that? Yeah, I think it would be important, at least I just want to say this for the audience sake, is that uh, Chris and I share a, des a common desire, which is to help make complex ideas easy to understand, um, to make them accessible to the masses. Um, Chris and I really have, at least for me, really only gotten to get to know each other the last couple of months, and uh, he's got a great book that will probably be mentioned that's worth looking into on Amazon. I read that and I could tell that he and I both share this common desire to, to kind of take these complex theological ideas, complex philosophical ideas, and just try to make them easy to understand so that a lot of people can follow along. So if we use terms that you've not heard of before or are not familiar with, uh, we're definitely gonna simplify things as much as possible. Awesome, okay. Thank you for that. Let's jump into discursive thought. Um, this is the idea that God has and uses reasoning. He moves from one thought to the next, building and formulating opinions, judgments, etc. It'd be something like hearing someone say something, thinking about it, uh, uh, thinking about those words, and reasoning in your mind from there. Well, how would you um, understand discursive thought? Yeah. Great question. Um, I recently uh, actually did a, did a sermon on this topic, and I described discursive knowledge or discursive thought as this idea that one thinks about and processes in their mind premises before making their conclusion. So discursive thought entails observation or recognition which come prior to your thoughts or prior to your conclusions about what you are observing, recognizing, pondering, etc. So just in case it's not clear, my position is that God does have discursive knowledge and discursive thought in his being. Perfect. Okay. And Chris, um, would you agree with what's been said so far or are there any caveats to discursive thought in that uh, in this sense I, I would say the definition 
so long as we understand and clarify. I know that Wilmington said this way, that we talked about one thought before the conclusion. We're not talking logical antecedent, logically before. Uh, we're talking temporally before, like I'm thinking about the premises, I pause, I process them, and then temporally the next thing that happens is I then come to the conclusion. Uh, there's a sense in which everyone will say that the premises are logically antecedently antecedent to the conclusions, but uh, we're talking about discursive thought is I think about so-and-so, I pause, process them, and then the next moment is I come to the conclusion. Perfect, okay. Um, okay, so now let's, let's we're kind of defining our terms here and then we're going to jump into the conversation. The next, the next one is going to be generated knowledge. So discursive thought and generated knowledge as it relates to God is kind of what we're talking about. Generated knowledge is simply the idea that God has thoughts. He thinks. He t that is, he, he takes in information and generates knowledge based off of the information he takes in. This also impacts divine experience. Well, how would you want to describe this? Yeah, so generated knowledge is knowledge that arises or comes about. So it means knowledge that comes into existence. The, the term generated is a little confusing. And so I, I tell people this to kind of help them understand it. If you think about the word generation, that word comes from the verb generate because new generations have not always existed and they come about from the previous generation. So generated knowledge is knowledge that has not always existed, but emerges or comes into being often by careful thought. Perfect. Okay. Chris, would you make any adjustments to uh, kind of how what we've talked about so far as it's related to generated knowledge adjustments no just to again say that uh it, we want to distinguish between a temporal generation which i think will is doing a good job of this is what we mean versus for example maybe we'll talk about this later there's a sense in which the sun is eternally generated eternally begotten well most classical theists certainly would say that that doesn't mean that God is, that Jesus is a created being, the Son is a created being, even though he's eternally generated. And so we need to distinguish probably between a temporal generation and then versus just what's eternally generated. And so I think uh, the whole notion of generated thought, generated knowledge as it relates to discursive thought is we're talking a temporal generation here, this and then that, rather than something that happens in eternity itself. Okay. Okay, perfect. So I think we've kind of laid the groundwork for where the conversation is going. Guys, I, Jordan, I see your comment. Is this the right title? I don't know that this is the right title. I've been, uh, I, the stream has dropped a couple different times. Uh, so I couldn't go off the scheduled stream. So I just hit go live now. It might not be the right title right now. I don't know. But if it's not, I'm going to go back and uh, edit this thing, edit the title, all that good stuff. I really don't know what is going on with the tech technology side of things. I see there's kind of a lag on the video with, with on Will's side for whatever reason. I don't see that with Chris. Um, but those things kind of are either going to iron themselves out or it's not. It's, we're just going to deal with it and run with it at this point. So, Okay, so I want you guys to take this, run with the conversation. Will, I want you to start this thing, if you would. As we think about discursive thought, as we think about generated knowledge, as, as it's related to God, um, where do you want to start the conversation? Because to me, the, this kind of can go in a lot of different directions. And 
it, it obviously is, is going to have to do with some of the omni attributes of God, but we'll take this thing away, get us kicked off. What do you think is the first starting point on what we need to talk about? Yeah, sounds good. Um, so, you know, I, I was in a debate recently, you know, a few months ago or whatever, and in preparation for the debate, I started looking into these two ideas, discursive thought generated knowledge, and I was curious what I would find kind of reading through scripture. So I think talking about, you know, the Bible and what the Bible teaches and hermeneutics are going to be, you know, the main thrust of the conversation. You know, Chris deals with this in his book. I think he even acknowledges that maybe the biblical arguments are the most robust against his position and so therefore need to be dealt with. Um, as I went through kind of just a straightforward reading through the Bible, reading um, out verses that imply or read that God does have discursive thought and generated knowledge, it was more than I was expecting. It was in the hundreds. And so I kind of think where this issue comes down to is, you know, how are we interpreting these verses, right? So I, I, I actually feel like from talking to people that I disagree with, reading Chris's book, looking more and deeper into what they call classical theism, I think I better understand where they're coming from and why they hold to these ideas. I, I still disagree, but I think whenever there's a disagreement, the goal should be to try to understand someone, someone else's position to at least walk away with saying, Hey, I understand better where you're coming from. I still disagree. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I would also consider myself a neoclassical theist, as you mentioned before with, uh, RT Mullins. And, uh, and so I take these verses in the Bible, which read as if God does have discursive thought and generated knowledge as literal, for lack of a better term. And so my position is that, you know, God does have these. And I think Chris will have some good arguments as to why he interprets those verses differently. And I think it'll be a, a good conversation all around. Awesome. Chris, where do you want to go with that in response to Will? And uh, maybe there's something that you want to bring up in addition to that. Sure. So I'm not a fan of straw manning. I like to steal man. So I want to do Will a favor and strengthen his argument, which I think is doubly nice since he has been so complimentary of the book that um, he has read. And yes, it, uh, the first, it's the three volume. The first, we'll talk about it later. Um, but the, the uh, let, let me say up front that if, if you read the Bible in a very straightforward fashion, the presentation of God is very much of a person in exactly the sense that you and I will are persons. Uh, it, God is presented not only in time as having thoughts and thinking and changing his mind and going back and forth and contemplating and even making mistakes and regretting things. Obviously, I have Genesis 6 in mind there. Uh, he, it goes further. God is presented as having a body, as having eyes, as having ears. And so if you read the scriptures in a very straightforward fashion, what you're presented with is an ancient Near Eastern view of, of God, which is a, a, 
well, when you think about Marduk and people like that, those kind of gods, you know, Ra, those that's that's the way they're that's the way they imagined them. Now, before you say, oh, Chris thinks that he's a liberal, this is the the Bible was written in a culture and a time to communicate certain ideas, and if we take those things very straightforwardly, those are the kind of conclusions we draw. Now, let me add to that and say I think that classical theists have at times been too quick to dismiss that language of God. I think, and I hope we're going to get into these very robust arguments for understanding well, what's called phenomenological language. Languages, it's written to appear to us in that way. I think there are really good reasons to interpret the language in non-literal fashions. But before we do that, I think we should probably ask the question, why is God, if, if he is what classical theists say, when what basically classical theists say is he's the ground of all existence, he is beyond us in every conceivable way. He is not, he's not even a being, he is the principle that makes being being. I mean, these these really crazy, out there ideas, abstract ideas. We can get into some of those. Why would God present himself in these highly personalized terms? And the reason is because he is a person and we relate to persons by faith. And so the faith piece, I think, is extremely interesting. I'm gonna say one last thing and then I'll, I'll, I'll move on. Uh, Will, you and I have talked about this before we got going on. Um, I do not regard this disagreement among classical theists and neo-theists as a salvation issue. There are some classical theists who do. I don't. For me, uh, what matters is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the important thing. But I think that undergirds the point here is the reason God presents himself in these highly personalized languages is because for most people, they're not philosophers. They're not advanced theologians. And so it's easier to place your faith in to understand this God who condescends to make himself more like us. So I think that's the motivation for the reason scripture loses that language. And then we're invited into theological and philosophical reflection through our, the process of interpreting scripture. So, I, again, I want to say, bottom line, you have a very, very strong case to consider God in a very straightforward fashion as personal as you and me, temporal as you and me. I just think that upon reflection, we might need to adjust some of those uh, initial readings. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, uh, Don Sternman, hopefully I said your name right there. The title is incorrect. I'm not, I won't keep mentioning it throughout the video, but the title is incorrect. It should be... Uh, something along the lines of two perspectives, discursive thought and generated knowledge. Um, that's what we're talking about tonight. But I, I think that, um, Chris, you've brought up some good points as it relates back to kind of the hermeneutics. The hermeneutics seems to be a big part of how we interpret scripture is going to determine how we think about God as it relates to these, these areas. And, and I'm quoting you, you say, the way I think about this uh, issue boils down to two very large areas. The first is hermeneutics, specifically what, if any, language about God in the Bible do we take literally? So, Will, you're big on, on this sort of language as it relates to how we see God portrayed in the Bible, and specifically um, whether we see things as anthropomorphic, anthropopathic readings, these, these ways that we see God described in the Bible, um, you would say we may need to take it more literally or, or in some way. Well, how would you respond to what Chris just said uh, along those lines and how it relates to our hermeneutics and how we actually um, understand Scripture and what it's saying? 
Yeah, so hermeneutics is super important. It's, it's how we are interpreting what we read in Scripture. And the key here for anybody um, the is we want to make sure that we're not interpreting verses based on what we believe, right? We don't want to bring our preconceived notions to the text and say, well, because I believe this, I'm going to interpret a verse this way. So this idea of, you know, exegesis is about, okay, let's figure out what the text actually means. What, what was the original intent? What are we supposed to learn or glean from the, the, these passages? And it's hard, right? Uh, we all have preconceived notions. We all have theologies. We all have things that we're defending. And so it's, you almost have to check yourself as you're, you know, in these discussions and going through scripture. And so I, uh, at least so far in my conversations with others, I find that the hermeneutics are lacking. And so I think this is going to be good to have a discussion about this tonight with Chris um, to kind of see where he's coming from. Um, I, the hermeneutic that I've really landed on personally is what I would just call authorial intent. And authorial intent is what did the original author who wrote the verse, what did that author intend the meaning to be? So if the original author intended a figure of speech like an anthropomorphism, well, then that is super important for us to know. But if the author didn't, then we need to be careful of calling that verse or that statement about God and anthropomorphism when that wasn't uh, the original intent of the author. Awesome. Okay. Chris, you say that whether or not God is temporal or timeless, so we're going to jump into kind of this side of the conversation. I think there's, I think the timelessness of God is, is going to play into how we see God relating to his creation throughout scripture and whether it's an authorial interpretation um, or kind of this grammatical, historical um, interpretation of, of the Bible. And I think personally, I, I hear people toss around the, the ancient Near Eastern way that people would have seen this. And to me, it's kind of like, well, maybe maybe that's the way they saw it, but maybe we're just saying, like, here's the ancient Near Eastern perspective on these things to support our perspective. Chris, like, where would you take that to go, like, well, we're not just saying it's the ancient Near Eastern perspective. Like, there's a reason sure. why we believe that they're seeing God this way, and this is the language they're using to describe him. Yeah, excellent question. So, uh, again, going back to the idea of steel manning arguments rather than straw manning, there is a possibility of committing what's called the fallacy of presentism, which is common in modern scholarship. The idea that, oh, we understand those cavemen better than they do. So uh, there, you can make an argument that they used the language they did precisely because they meant the language and we should believe the language. The question is, did they mean that language that way? And I think there are some places they clearly did. And so my suggestion is you largely have to, you take them on a case-by-case basis, I grant, but then you also have to pause and ask yourself uh, what comes before. And so let me just give you an example. I, uh, and. I discussed this in elsewhere in the text we've talked about a couple of times. I, I, I take it as of great importance, especially about timelessness, uh, that the Bible starts, the opening words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
it's almost as if the very first thing that Scripture wants to reveal about God, and this is entirely literal, there's no, the hermeneutics here is just what Will is saying, that here's the hermeneutic, is the, 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 the proper interpretation, that before the world was, God was. That's God, whatever else he is, just is that, is that being that is above the world, before the world, is entirely independent of the world, and that nothing whatsoever exists outside of his uh, creative and sustaining power. That's the fact that that's the very first thing that Scripture reveals, I think, is of some importance. This doesn't come later in the revelation of, uh, you know, this is not a third or fourth or fifth or eighth point. This is up top. And I think it's actually part of the importance of the interpretation of Genesis 1 in terms of setting up how we understand, for example, what sin is. Uh, without going too much toward Genesis 1, largely the way I read it, it's about God establishing the order of creation so that when sin happens and we see in the next several chapters the disorder that arises, we start to understand what sin is. Is the, It's a violation of the order that God imposed. So the reason I think that's important is because there are some logical inferences that we draw from that. If it's really true that God is above and before all creation, then let's go back to your ancient Near Eastern thing. That's actually a phenomenal statement in an ancient Near Eastern culture because none of the ancient Near Eastern cultures have their gods before the world. All of them, all the creation myths, the world is already existing in some sense. And God is, the gods are there, and some of them are crazy, and we're not going to go into those. Uh, I would encourage you to look at some of them. They're very entertaining, to put it mildly. And so you have uniquely here a claim that Yahweh is above all. That means he's before all. That means that if there is no world, God already is. That isn't allowed to change just because there's a world. It's not like that now that there's a world, suddenly God needs it. And so whatever we say about God, in my assessment, the first thing we have to say and never leave is that God is above the world. He is beyond the world, not dependent on the world. In any sense, what theologians call that aseity, God's existence is within himself. And if God existed that way, if we take the fact that time is a part of the world, and if God existed before the world existed, then God existed at least in a timeless state prior to uh, uh, creation. So okay. I think that's just, it, it, it's biblical fact. So unless you're going to argue, like say William Lane Craig does, that somehow God's creation world pulls him into time, which I don't know that makes a lot of sense personally, then we have a biblical claim off the top in the very first verse that God is timeless. He starts that way. Okay. Okay, so Will, Chris is making a pretty strong argument to present the idea that God is timeless based off the very first verse in the Bible that would put time as a part of creation, God being prior to that creation. Um, therefore, God had to exist in some sort of sense prior to what was created, including time. Where would you kind of take that side of the conversation as it's related to the timelessness of God, the aseity of God, and what's the importance of that to our conversation as, as we try to understand the thoughts of God, whether the discursive, the knowledge of God, whether it's generated. Yeah, I actually think this is a great place to start, right? Uh, why not start at the beginning? <laughs> so uh, my position, and again, just to be clear, you know, Chris and I wanted to have a discussion where I lay my position out, he lays his position out, 
And then we kind of let the audience uh, better understand both sides and then kind of take this where it goes. So this isn't a, a debate. Um, my, my, my position actually is that, is that the, the creation itself, the, the, the term we're all familiar with in the Bible before the foundation of the world, I actually think that, that this shows that God is temporal. Uh, I, I actually think this goes against the idea of a timeless God um, because with, with, with timelessness, with atemporality, you, you have no succession. You have no before, you have no after. And so when we speak in terms of, you know, prior to creation, before the world was, before the foundation of the world, these are actually temporal uh, words. This is temporal language. And so I struggle in, in my studies to imagine uh, a world without, a, a, a God without a world <laughs> and then a God that has a world. And so without there being temporality, without there being a before and after. So if we take the, you know, standard classification of timelessness, which is no succession, no past, present, future, no before or after, I think the position, the logical conclusion is either that God and the world have eternally existed simultaneously, or, uh, or the world did not exist, then it did exist, which is not only succession for the world, but I think succession for God himself as well. Okay, so I think Will is, is making an argument that even when we tried to describe the timelessness of God and his relation to creation, we're using temporal language. Chris, so mm -hmm. it's like, well, we're, we're describing this before and after of God in relation to creation, but yet God was never... At, truly in this moment before creation was it's all it's almost like this always was somehow present with god like in this eternal now moment um it, but it the confusing part is we're describing this moment before creation was and god right. existing prior to that where would you take this conversation and um kind of respond to what will just laid out there to to see how he sees the temporal side of God existing. So I want to hear go back to some of the hermeneutical uh, suggestions we were saying before. Um, it, it's rather well established among the most conservative of, 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 of interpreters uh, that the Bible uses language of appearance. And so the most obvious examples people say is the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, or the world is unmoved. Okay, so nobody... It, it, we understand that literally the sun doesn't rise in the east. We understand, and I suppose there are some people who are, I, I don't want to get too much into conspiracy theories who are on the flat earth model who might not think that, but <laughs> that there's such thing as phenomenological language, that we understand the earth rotates on its axis, and that's just the Bible is describing things the way they appear from a human perspective. That's... That's standard. The, the earth looks like it doesn't move. It's firm. The, the whole idea of domes, all that kind of stuff in the, the, the firmament being a dome, that's all language that's used to describe the way things look. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. It is entirely, it's, it's using to describe uh, this is the phenomenon as it appears to human perspective. Now, the problem is when you're discussing like creation, which is entirely unique. I think it's pretty well established. I don't know that it's much of an assumption here that time is a part of creation. It's 
And so if you talk about before creation does become a self-contradictory term, there is no such thing as before creation. And theologians and philosophers have recognized that since day one. Scientists today recognize that. And to really drive home this point, you talk to modern scientists, just, I mean, scientists who have no interest in theology whatsoever, and they will use language, whatever your opinion on modern science and modern cosmology, they'll talk about before the Big Bang. But from a strictly from a scientific perspective, that doesn't mean anything. But even they use that language because it's phenomenological language. So my point here is simply that this is the way language works. What we really literally mean the behind the un unintended figure of speech is something like what in that moment that creation happened, that there's no such thing as before. So there's no be it's not like there was nothing and then there was something. It's you go to the earliest, earliest temporal boundary. What is the cause, the fundamental cause of that earliest, can, earliest boundary? And the cause of that is nothing temporal. There's not, nothing in time. It's just God. It's just the effect. It's just the cause of it. So we call that before because that's the way we describe language. Again, sun rising east, sun in the west. That language works because we are not a temporal being so we have to talk that way there's no other way to make that kind of conversation okay um i think there's a lot of different directions that we can go to take this conversation i think the key is to see that uh chris you understand the end atemporality of god is kind of this phenomenal phenomenological language that we see in the bible to describe um, and relate to God based off of the things that we would they would describe him thinking about, the, the things that he talks about, the things that he does in his acts of creation and the incarnation and these sort of events where God intervenes in this world. Uh, Will, you're looking at it from the perspective like, like we can't even use language to imagine this atemporal God like when we're describing the very first verse in the Bible, like, Everything about God in our understanding is temporal. Like we even describe this before and after of creation. We describe the thoughts that God has like something that we relate to as being um, actually how God operates within his creation. But I, I think that um, for me, Will, I'd like to bring it back to you to kind of see where you would go with this, kind of with that as our foundation, what do you see as the big, biggest problem with the classical view as it relates to the discursive thoughts of God and how Scripture, from an authorial um, interpretation, that you understand the thoughts of God? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, let's, uh, let's definitely get into some Scripture here. Um, so I think Chris mentioned this kind of at the beginning, you know, anticipating that I would bring this up. And I think it's, I think it's a good thing to discuss, which is um, that I believe the Bible states that God changes his mind. Um, the term is often, the Hebrew term, um, nacham, is often translated as repent. Um, but it's really, uh, it really essentially means to change one's mind, to, to change direction, to turn, etc., and so I think that would be a good uh, good place to to look and to start to think about this because if we start big picture, just so everybody can follow and understand, a change of mind demands 
certain things. And I think Chris would agree with me here. Number one, a change of, a change of mind demands time, right? You, you, you can't be atemporal and then change your mind. Uh, a change of mind would also demand new information. If you don't have new information, you're not going to change your mind. And so that's generated knowledge. Um, and so I think that would be a good place to start. Um, you know, we have, you know, verses both in Genesis and Exodus, which is, you know, we're all familiar with these stories. They're at the beginning of the Bible that talk about God repenting. We've got Genesis 6. We have Exodus 32. And so I think those would be a couple good places to start uh, so that the audience can kind of understand, okay, here are these passages. Here's what Will thinks they mean. And then, Chris, you can uh, explain kind of what you think they mean. And then after that, I think it would be good to take a look at uh, her, look at those verses hermeneutically as well. Okay, cool. Will, um, you wanted to start well, with James? Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, great. So let's let's start with uh, Genesis six. So Genesis six is obviously very early on in the Bible, um, but quite a bit of time has has already passed in the history of the world. Uh, but essentially, <clears throat> the picture that we have painted here is that men generally are evil. Um, it talks about the the thoughts of men being only evil continually talks about how the wickedness of man is great on the earth. And then Genesis 6, 6 says, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so my position is that God sees uh, what men are freely doing how evil they've become, and there's regret there. Uh, not not regret as it has done something wrong, but regret in terms of how bad it is. There's suffering, there's pain, and then he says, you know, I'm going to destroy man for I regret or I that I have made them. So, so this is something that I take. My interpretation is that this is a change of mind. This is new information. This is discursive thought. And then, Chris, kind of what's your position? So I will offer that uh, <clears throat> I, I might strengthen the, the uh, when, when I preach this, I talk about the sorrow aspect, maybe just a little bit stronger. I, I don't see actually in the text of Genesis itself any indication of change of mind explicitly. They're actually even in a common there. There might be a, a, a logical inference you can try to draw. Uh, you know, the King James, it repented the Lord that he made the earth and it grieved him in his heart. The word repented and grieved there are parallel on purpose. And I think it's pretty composed that way on purpose. It's, he's not a, and so if you think about the grieving here, the, the, I think the word nakam, what's being pulled out of this particular word is the idea of sorrow. It made God sorry that he, uh, it, it made God sorrowful and it grieved him. It hurt him in his heart. So I think the the picture that this is painting uh and, and the new testament analogy might be grieve not holy spirit the picture that's being painted again going way back to genesis 1 and the order that god had created is remember that god had made the world very good 
the text doesn't say this, but I think it's more than fair to draw the uh, conclusion that God is pleased at the end of Genesis 1. But then if you go to Genesis 6, it's the farthest thing from pleasing. And so what happens is you uh, structurally what you're having is this, it's demonstrating how far that we have fallen from Genesis 1 all the way into Genesis 6. And this is why you have the story. The flood is then actually pictured as a story of uncreation to start over. That's why after the flood, you have Gen you have Noah being declared uh, almost a second Adam. He's given the same a blessing again with some minor modifications. Now they, he's, he can eat meat and there's uh, animals are going to fear him and those sorts of things um, at this point come up. So the world starts over up now almost on on different terms so the emphasis here for me is not anything like god changing his mind and so that kind of gets set aside the emphasis here is on how far we've fallen and i'll say metaphorically uh this is the picture of how much pain this causes god and so there's a almost a poetic sense we can say that we hurt god when we when we sin so it's the picture where we're trying to get us to take our sin seriously well, how, how would you respond to that? Yeah, for, so I'm trying to think of, uh, I've got a few things I'd like to say in response. So Chris, we, we're going to have to get into something else a little bit right now. At least you should kind of explain your position to the audience because they might, may not be familiar with it. But I think the idea of God having sorrow would contradict divine simplicity. Um, in your book, you said on divine simplicity, God doesn't have emotions. So do you kind of want to let the audience know your position and then kind of help me reconcile that? Yeah, sure. So again, I, I, that's why I kind of offer that ultimately it's metaphorical. And this is why I think if you take Genesis 1 out, let me just kind of give you something very important off the top. And, th and this may be enough to just say, no, God is temporal and changes his mind to be done with it. You take Genesis 1, 1 out then there is almost no reason not to take this as absolutely, literally, God, he's sorry, which in my mind implies God made a mistake. We can try to be pious and say, oh, no, but God doesn't make mistakes. But if he actually is aggrieved and he's sorry so much so that I shouldn't have made these people, that talking about new information, that sounds very much like God made a mistake, and we can try to do what we want. I think a, a piety recognizes that we shouldn't do that. But then if you tie Genesis 1 back in, in my original arguments for the absolute self-existence of God, then what this whole story is telling you, this whole purpose is that we're going to tell this story in the mode, uh, which makes, makes it true. I'm not, when, please, when I say the mode of ancient Near Eastern stories that I'm not saying they're not historically accurate, but that we're telling them in that particular, that particular structure. Or using those particular motifs and themes because that's what people would have understood that was their that was their common language of the day so but we're still put this back against the genesis one claim that god is absolutely above all and if god really is above all if he really is simple if he really is timeless well he can't feel sorrow he can't change his, he can't come into new information because the same moment that God was creating the universe for God, he's also watching his son down the cross and resurrecting everyone at the end of time. For God, this is an ever-present now. So the question becomes, again, why is it presented this way? Well, because from man's perspective, when we enter, we interact with God and it, it, what we're experiencing, the way that mankind is experiencing God now is they have broken his order in every way. The later Old Testament revelations can talk about the wrath of 
God is being revealed against sin. And so you can use all kind of language for this. It's it, you're, you're grieving God, you're making him sorry, you're making him angry. But these are changes in man and how they are related to God. It's not strictly changes in God himself. The story is told that way because it's not a philosophical text. We are very prone to say in Genesis 1, oh, oh but it's not a scientific text. Well, we should be just as quick to say it's not a philosophical text too. It's telling the story in a way that it captures the theological thrust, and then we can do the philosophical, theological, and maybe scientific kind of work after the fact. Well, I'll just have you yeah, guys kind so, of run with this, I'll and I'll jump in if I... If, yeah, that if sounds... I, yeah. yeah, that sounds great. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I think I would like to just say kind of one other thing on, on Genesis 6. And then if you want to have the last word, Chris, you can, yeah. and then we can hop over to Exodus 32. Uh, and then I think after talking about Exodus 32, we can move on to a different topic because we definitely don't want to beat a dead horse and kind of cover everything we plan on covering. Um, in Genesis 6, 7, um, it's actually quoting God. So it says, so the Lord said, and then it quotes God. And then what's interesting is that I think God could have said, um, I will destroy man whom I have created, for I am sorry that they are so wicked, for I am sorry that they have, you know, chosen to only commit evil continually, etc. But he actually says, for I am sorry that I have made them. So he's, right. he's bringing the emotional aspect of this to his action, not man's yes. actions. And so that is, to mm -hmm. me a strong case for what's really going on here, why I do believe God changes his mind. And I'll just say this last piece and then I'll turn it over to you, Chris, is that when men regret things all the time that are not mistakes. So for example, if I was on a business trip and somebody broke into my house and killed my family, you know, I'd regret going on the business trip, but I literally did nothing wrong. We, we all have to leave our house. We have to work. We have to support our family. Uh, and so the, the reality is when men do evil and hurt people that we love and care for, that can cause regret. That doesn't mean that there was a mistake made. Sure. And again, I'm always, I always want to start with what I think is the strength in the position because very often what classical theists do, and I really mean this, okay, is they often try to explain away these texts. And you, we cannot do that, okay? Uh, and if I'm explaining the text away, then ignore me. The point is very. The point of the text as written is something like what you're saying. God is being presented here as a creator and almost as a father figure, um, where he is pulling the action. I did this, and it's almost like the pain of a father and saying, "I." Look how much pain you're causing me uh, in the sense of, uh, I should never have done this in the first place. This wasn't worth it. You can almost hear God's exasperation. Uh, and, I, and I appreciate the the caveat you're going to want to place there on, well, I can I can regret things to not be mistakes, but I might gently suggest that you're also not God. You don't know everything. <laughs> uh, you don't, even if you just define omniscience in the weaker sense of all that can be known, we have to at least say with somebody like, like Boyd, that God is uh, at least knows all possibilities as a plan for everything. And so for God to be caught off guard and feel like uh, there was some unexpected, unintended consequences, I think is at least at a very minimum, it's going to be beneath uh, beneath God 
in theologically, and I would even suggest beneath God in the story, since this is part of the Genesis 1 through 11 narrative. So the emotional value of God saying, I am sorry that I made them, that's that's the emotional heart of the story, which is our sin really is in some sense rooted. It really is without making God the author of sin. It's because God made us that sin is present. I don't want to say that because God made us, sin is present. I think that's going to set the stage for why it's fitting for God himself to address sin, both immediately in the life of Israel with the Day of Atonement and ultimately, of course, in Jesus Christ. None of this, I think, gives us reason to uh, assert that it's literal that God actually made a mistake. And I think that language might also be a tip to the fact that, remember Genesis 1, we have to mean something else other than God's not this daddy in the sky who, who did realize he made a boo-boo. Will, how do you want to respond cool. to that? Let's, uh, yeah, let, let's hop over to Exodus 32. Um I want to read a couple of verses, uh, kind of give my thoughts, get Chris's thoughts, and then I, and then I want to take a look at hermeneutics uh, for these couple of passages we're talking about. So in Exodus 32, <clears throat> this is the you know golden calf chapter. You know Moses mm-hmm. is you know on the mountain with God. They make a golden calf, and so in verse 10, you know God is telling. Moses, hey, this people is, you know, this people, they're they're a stiff-necked people. And so verse 10, he says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. So he tells Moses. And then I'm going to skip forward to verse 14. Verse 14 says, So the Lord repented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. So the, what yep. I see here is I, I see a change of mind. Uh, I see God saying he's going to do one thing, and then it says that God repented. And what happens in between those verses, which we'll get into, is essentially Moses, you know, it actually says Moses pleaded with God. And, uh, and so that, that's what I think led to this change of mind. And so, Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. I love this passage. I think this is one of my favorite passages to help explain to people. When, when people say to me, how does God answer prayer? I, this is a, a huge problem if you're a classical theist, but it's even a problem if you're just kind of a, haven't thought about a lot. You just think God knows the future. Let's just take the most basic sense. Forget classical theism, simplicity and timelessness. If you just think that God knows the future and his, his mind is made up, why would I bother asking God for anything? And so you can't change God's mind if he already knows the future. So this is a a larger problem. The answer to that, I think, ties in well with my own view. Of course, that's why I hold it. (laughs) And it's based in large part, illustrated at least by the scripture. I would say say that there are some things, I've said this a million times, that God has simply said that he will give you whether you like it or not. Maybe I should have. I did not. When I go to bed last night, uh, would you let me wake up in the morning? I have a podcast to do. (laughs) I didn't ask. I just... We have to sleep on a woke up. God just gave me today because he's awesome. And maybe he'll give me tomorrow too. There are some things that God is simply never going to give me no matter how much I beg and plead. I'm just never going to get that um, 1967 GT Shelby 500 that I saw in um, that movie with Nicolas Cage. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> maybe God will hear that and change his mind. But then I think there are some things that God wills that you receive on one of two conditions. 
if you go out and put it forward to human effort, that's the means by which he will give you those things. And so as we sit here, uh, we are we are having a conversation right now, right? And it's entirely possible that we didn't have to have this conversation, but we had some delays, right? And yet the three of us worked through the issues and rescheduled and we worked through them and through our working through them, I think that God ordained and said, you guys can have this conversation if you're willing to put the effort in. And I think there are other things that God simply says that if you ask me, that's the means by which I will in fact give them. And I think this is rather humbling because I wonder how many things that I have not asked God for, and he's therefore, I'm going to get to heaven and see all these things that I've not gotten. So I think this text beautifully illustrates that. God is actually saying, I'm going to destroy these people, and I am going to start over with you. And it's almost a call back to Moses, right? God, God, let's, I mean, to know it, God's willing to start over. And yet there's this idea here, Moses is an interceder, and inter he likes to intercede, which is a picture of what Israel should be for the world, right? And of course, ultimately, Jesus is. There's a lot of beautiful typology and theology there. But God, from his eternity past, I think just this is interesting. I think this is just intrinsic into the text. He answers, he doesn't change it. He, an, he doesn't change his mind in the sense of he, oh, okay, fine, I'll, I'll take. What he does is he knows that if Moses asks this, then I'm going to give it. Moses did ask, and so he gave. And so now we're back to the constant refrain I'm always going to have. The change of mind language is always phenomenological. From Moses' perspective, it was this, now it's that. From a human perspective, you can describe that as a change of mind. And it's probably a good idea to describe it as a change of mind because we're trying to relate to a personal God rather than this abstract um, principle of existence. Uh, but again, let's not confuse the philosophical analysis with what the point of the text is, which is that you should pray to God and ask him for things and intercede on behalf of others. Okay, there's a lot in there, Will. Okay. Um, yeah. We're, <laughs> Um, and Sorry. so I'll throw this in there and, and Will, I know you've got something on your mind that you're, you're going to throw out and, and, um, bring up, but so this is me just listening to you guys talk. I'm thinking I'm, and I'm going in my mind, it seems less complicated to just adopt the temporal view and go like from God's perspective and the human perspective, this is what God is communicating and this is what God is experiencing but Chris, it seems like you're um, going out of the way to describe like God's trying to relate to us in a way we can understand from the human experience. This is not the God experience, mm -hmm. so to speak. He's he's trying to communicate okay. to us in a way we can understand what's going on, some sort of principle, some sort of thing. And as it relates to prayer, this I mean this is massive to me in my mind in the way I think about God is prayer like that's game changer for me but will where would you take that conversation i i know you're you're on the side of going yeah like it's god's temporal he's communicating to us what he wants us to understand the author the author is communicating to us what god wants us to understand but in response to chris it's kind of the god experience and the human experience and god communicating to us in a way that we could relate somehow so where would you go with that Yeah. So, um, hey, Chris. So, so this verse fourteen here, kind of this key verse in Exodus thirty-two, where it says, and again, this this is not quoting God, right? So, this is Moses, who is writing this verse. It says, "So the Lord repented from the harm which He said He would do to His people." And again, I, I love your idea sure. of uh, steel manning argument. So, I want to make sure I fully understand 
your argument here, and I think, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're saying that Moses in, intended to say to state that this is what it appears like God, what God is doing from man's perspective, but that's not exactly what's going on. I yeah, I'll, with this little caveat. God really did intend it from a human perspective. I mean, it actually was going to happen. Had Moses not done so, it's an actual real possibility. It's not an empty threat. Uh, however, Moses did intercede, and therefore God no longer changed his actions. So how we have the conversation, well, did God ever really intend it because his foreknowledge? And that's a pretty standard foreknowledge argument. But I, I don't think the fact that God knows that the fact that God knows that Moses is going to actually doesn't mean the threat's not real. I mean, I think anybody who has any kids and has ever raised kids can know that you can make a genuine threat. And sometimes the genuineness of the threat is how you know it's going to make a difference. Got it. Okay, cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to make a hermeneutical argument here. And okay. uh, I don't think I've ever used this okay. argument before. So I, I, I've intended to and just never, uh, it's never uh, transpired. So, um, again, as I mentioned, uh, my hermeneutic is authorial intent, trying to figure out what exactly did the author mean. So we, we have an interesting situation here where in Exodus 32, the story is about Moses, and Moses is also the author of Exodus 32, of, of the book of Exodus. And so in verse 11, <clears throat> 12, and 13, that's when it says, then Moses pleaded with the Lord. And in verse 12, it says, he, Moses said, why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, mm -hmm. and to consume them from the face of the earth? And then here's the key part. Moses tells God, turn from your fierce wrath and repent from this harm to your people. So my mm -hmm. argument is that Moses actually believed God would repent and that God would change his mind because he asked yes. him to. He believed God yes. would do one thing. He said, God, do something different. And so I think in verse 14, the, the authorial intent when it says, so the Lord repented from the harm, which he said he would do, is that he actually did change his mind. Sure. And so I will offer, and I hope this isn't too surprising for like a double-mouthed, um, double-tongued. I, I would be perfectly fine with preaching a sermon or hearing a sermon. I would never perform once if you literally said... Uh, ask God to change his mind of, okay, if, if you are caught in sin, you can expect God to bring some sort of discipline in your life. It's going to happen. We have all kinds of scripture. I would strongly advise you to repent, you to confess, and ask God to change his mind and know that he will. I'm entirely okay saying that as a classical theist. Because... Again, I think it's entirely fair to distinguish between the language that we use in relational language, and it's real insofar as it's relational, it's real. And yet, it's then you ask, you pause on the back end and say, okay, but what are the philosophical implications of that language? And I think that's a different question. So if we want to talk about what is the actual point of Exodus, it's something like you're talking about. Again, I would suggest... The real point is actually more to do with Moses as the inter uh, as an intercessor, and this is going to set up what Moses. What the what, this is really sets up what Israel ought to be going into the promised land, the function they're going to have, and I think there's all that stuff tied in there. But uh, no, it is entirely entirely legitimate 
to simply talk about God changing his mind full stop with no with no philosophical speculation whatsoever. The problem comes up when we start trying to do a more systematic analysis of, okay, well, then does this mean that God in his essence does these things? Okay, well, the text doesn't actually say in his essence. That maybe, maybe not. We need to have to have a, a full conversation about that. And we, we can talk more about that if we want. But. All right. So, Will, does that kind of – Yeah. So it, go ahead. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, Josh, you brought up uh, the importance to you of kind of the topic of God and prayer, right? So we have an example here of Moses. I mean, obviously their relationship was so different than ours with God. You know, M Moses spoke to God face to face, but Moses is praying. He's pleading. He's reaching out to God. And I think this is important, Chris. Um, and again, one of the things I really appreciated about your book is I felt like you did not try to, uh, you know, veil anything. You didn't try to leave anything out. You're just like, hey, you know, here, here's the here's the position. Here's the difficulties. Here's my response yeah. to the to the difficulties. I, and I loved it because so many so many times when you're having discussions with people, it's very hard to get them to to actually just kind of have an honest conversation. So I I really appreciated well, that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I would encourage people to read your book. The, the worst that will happen is they'll better understand classical <laughs> theism and divine simplicity. Sure. So that's everybody should want to understand all of these things better. So in your section on God and prayer, I, I thought maybe that's where you were the most honest about your position, which I thought was fantastic. And again, just to make sure, please make sure that I'm not you know misrepresenting you. But essentially, you kind of painted this picture that if our view is that our prayers are changing what God was going to do so that he then does mm -hmm. something else that doesn't mm -hmm. work with divine simplicity. Correct. And then to quote you, I think you, to quote you, I think you said the best answer I am aware of is that God does not in fact change in response to our prayers. So do you want to unpack that for Correct. the audience a little bit? Yeah. So yeah, I do. Let me offer just, no, I'll, I'll ask that directly and come back if I need to. Yeah. So if we take this whole notion of God as timelessness seriously, one of the primary implications, if God doesn't have an, a, a moment and then another moment, another moment, that means the moment that God is, he just is what he is, which means he doesn't have new thoughts. There's no discursive thought. There's no generated knowledge. It's just a current present knowledge of everything of all time. There's nothing to add. If that's the case, then it just logically and necessarily follows that if I ask God something, uh, whether it happens or not, there is no way in which I can say that God changed in response to me. It's not like the guy was going along, heard my prayer and said, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, I'll do that for him. I'll be nice. And then goes in, goes in a direction that he wasn't going to go to before. Uh, again, that just doesn't work if you have a timeless um, simple God. And I think what I go on to the book today say is that the next line is something like that God, either before or after, is that God doesn't respond to us, is that we respond to him. And so that God is the whole world in some sense, the manifestation of God's will. And so we are aligning ourselves moment by moment. And then how that we interact with this ground of all being, this, this, 
this God of all gods, this act of all acts, this sovereign of all sovereigns, how we experience that. Well, prayer is a huge part of that because it helps me align with that divine will. If I align this way, I'm going to experience it this way. If I experience it, if I change it this way, I might experience it. So one way I might experience it is blessing. Another way I might experience that divine will is as cursing or, or discipline or something along those lines. Strictly from my perspective, it can look like God changes and I, I'm free to talk about it that way because again it's relational it's not lying it's just that's the way we talk but if you're going to be a philosophically pure uh, a purist on this you would actually say that God doesn't is not the one that changes at all nor does he even respond God is his eternal self same perfectly at peace existence great yeah thank you that was very very helpful and I think this will be a good segue to kind of keep moving forward in the conversation. And I'll just use the example from Exodus 32, even though I could use it from in many different places. So in Exodus 32 and then other places throughout Scripture, it talks about God's wrath. Um, so again, you know, God said, let mm -hmm. me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. I think with, you know, classical theism, divine simplicity, uh, timelessness, really god doesn't have emotions and so i think people understanding this Correct. is going to be key i personally i personally struggle the most with wrath meaning that's the hardest one for me to kind of overcome to accept what divine simplicity is teaching so do you kind of want to explain that part of divine simplicity in general and then also and then deal with kind of how that how wrath is interpreted Sure. So again, the basic idea is not only, and this is where people get into simplicity and they're going to, they realize they go, this is really strange. It, it, it simplicity is not simple. And so, uh, what the idea is that not only if God, if God doesn't have temporal parts, if the thing about thing about emotions is uh, I'm, I'm feeling happy right now. And then I'm feeling sad and then I'm feeling angry. And th there's these emotional follows one after the other. I go from a state of contentment to a state of anger from a state of happiness to a state of sadness. If God doesn't have temporary, no temporal parts, there's no such thing as emotional change in God because there's no change. So either we have to say that God experiences all emotions at the same time, and I don't know that that's meaningful to say that God is happy and sad at the same time. You say, well, different people. Well, but I think there have been times when God is happy at me and sad at me too and angry at me too. And so how can he feel all the, it just doesn't, if God is not temporal, he doesn't experience these various emotional changes. And then furthermore, we would say that God doesn't even have different emotions. We wouldn't even say that part of God feels love and part of God feels peace and all these sorts of things. What we would say strictly in classical theism is that what God experiences is the fullness of his being. And the closest word we have for that is joy. God and this is such an amazing thing to me. I think this is beautifully in, a, in the Trinity. God's perfect internal self-existence is never-ending, perfect, indescribable joy. And he, he invites us into that. That's what Christian is. It's inviting us into how amazing this is. So what happens is then when we, ex when we are enacting in accordance with God's will. Well, what's God's will? This isn't mystical. This is Genesis 1 again. This is why Genesis 1 starts where it does. People who are asking for evidence, here you go. It starts the way it does because God has created the world in a certain order. And so when you operate in the order that God has designed, you experience the world and God in a particular way. And you call that 
I'm happy. Blessed is the man who, and you experience God's, you experience that joy as, in some sense as he experiences it. If you get outside of that order, God has set the world up where what he experiences joy, suddenly you are, you are off center from where God wants to be. And so, because it's corrective, because God set the world up to bring you back into line with how it ought to be, well, that corrective is not comfortable. And so it's painful. And so we, we call that something like wrath. And the worse the sin, the further you are, the more disordered you are, the more death and destruction it brings, the worse and worse the wrath gets. And that can become eternal, where you totally cut yourself off, in my theology, from God forever and ever. And then you're ex permanently, permanently, eternally disordered, which would be what hell is. Okay, so my position is that wrath is in to use a philosophical term, an accidental property of God. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, you know, something that is a reaction. It's something that's, you know, a provocation. And it's something that would not exist if it weren't for man and sin. And so when I envision God just existing without a world, without sin, without the fall, you know, there's no reason or for, for God to have wrath. And so I think that's kind of one of the main reasons that divine simplicity doesn't hold to God having emotions. And I think it's super easy to understand that with wrath. And so biblically, when I see wrath, I envision God as actually being angry and being full of mm -hmm. wrath. How do you interpret that? So again, just imagine where if I am, if I am, if God has created me to be in a particular way and I am operating the way God wants me to operate, then the way I am going to experience him is going to be a positive experience. He has just set the world up that way. And so I call that love and joy and peace and all the rest. If I sin, and what is sin? Sin is a religious word to say that I am operating outside the bounds of the order that God has placed upon the world. And again, I want to argue that that's not a philosophical point. That's a biblical point that comes out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's what sin is. Is a, What is sin? It's a violation of God's law. Oh, no. Sin is the violation of the divine order that God has placed on things. And by the way, that's not only sin in the sense of moral sin, that's also natural evil. There are things that happen in this world that are a violation of the natural order, and they happen because of man's sin. That's also part of the scriptural testimony. And so you said, what is God's wrath? God's wrath is experience. It's the experience of God himself, like the actual God when you encounter him in a disordered way. So if I, if, if I meet him in an ordered fashion, when I'm experiencing his blessing and joy and love and all the rest, if I meet him and I'm in a disordered fashion, the way that ex same experience, there's no difference. It's the same God feeling the same thing in himself, but the experience to me is one of agony because I am, well, here's a silly analogy and all analogies break. Um, if I am, well, if I'm inside a dark room all day and I walk outside into a bright sun, all of a sudden what happens, it hurts a whole lot. But if I'm out there all day, then it, it's, it was the same sun. It's a matter of what, what's about, what's, what, how have I been when I encountered said sun? Okay. So I'm going to jump in for just a second here and kind of give a summary of what I'm hearing. Um, and then kind of drive the conversation towards, uh, concluding remarks for this side of the conversation to jump into the incarnation and the impact that has on kind of these overarching themes of what we're 
understanding God to be in his re- in, in his interaction with creation. So um, kind of what I'm hearing is the predominant idea for both perspectives, it comes down to either the atemporality or the temporality of God, whether God is timeless, whether he's temporal, uh, and the, his relation to time. For me personally, um, I, I think that both sides are wanting to understand God the best way we know how and the relatable in the way that God has communicated to, communicated to us through his word. So so the atemporal, the timeless side wants to say like the greatest possible being, the God of scripture, he has to be atemporal and timeless outside of time. Um, he's not affected by his creation. Prayer doesn't change God, whether it's a Cambridge change, whether it's some reaction to our prayer. Um, God doesn't actually experience wrath. He doesn't experience emotions, these sort of things, because the greatest possible being and the God that we worship in classical theism doesn't have these experiences because he can't. And from Will's side, and I'm more sympathetic to this side of the timeless side of understanding God, I think that for me personally, it's so much easier to just go, God is still the greatest possible being, and he doesn't have to be timeless. Like, we're, we've made this philosophical conclusion that time had to be this created thing. If time is part of who God is in some way of understanding that and, and uh, wording it in a way that would be acceptable, I could just drop that and go, well, God, God's still the greatest possible being. He's not timeless. He does experience these things, and he's still God. He's still the God who's communicated to us through Scripture. It just it impacts the way that I pray. It impacts the way that I see others. It impacts the way that I think God interacts with his creation. And that would lead to my understanding of God's greatest interaction with creation and the incarnation itself when God became flesh. Uh, but Will, I know that um, you've probably got something that you wanted to respond to what Chris had just said. And I'll give you a chance to respond. If you didn't have anything, we'll jump right into the incarnation and, and go from there. Yeah, I think we can jump into the incarnation. Um, so, so the incarnation for me, as I mentioned before, I see the... I, well, let, me, let me step back first and just say something I already mentioned. I see the creation of the universe as something that requires time. Uh, I, I do believe that creator as a as an attribute or property or description of God is something that is accidental. But by the way, that's a philosophical term. <laughs> and what I'm talking about there is is potentiality, um, meaning that God could potentially create or he could potentially not create. I, I think God had the freedom and ability to not create, to refrain from creating. And so similarly with the incarnation, I struggle big time to reconcile the incarnation with the idea that God is timeless, with atemporality, that there's no succession. Um, And I honestly personally don't know uh, an argument or a way around this. The, The hypostatic union, as it's often referred to in theological circles and throughout church history, is this idea that the divine nature uh, was essentially joined to a human nature. That's the union. That's the hypostatic union. And so I I think that that means that the divine nature existed 
without a human nature hypostatically joined to it. And now the divine nature has this human nature, um, uh, again, through this union, through this hypostatic union. And so I think we have, at least in my mind, clear succession here. We have a, we have a past yeah. uh, in God's life. We have a past in God's existence. And so anyway, that, that's kind of my position. And so just to clarify and kind of put a bow on this, and then we can hand it over to Chris, I would say that God existed in his past, not our past. That's important here. God existed in his past without a human nature, but then became a man. That's a change word took on a human nature and uh and now that is his present and future going forward uh temporally speaking that's great okay so i think both sides are agreeing with the hypostatic union um side of i mean we could call it classical theism like that's a classical theistic position like just orthodox this is the hypostatic union there's there's the there's the divine uh, meets the human, they come together. So Will's saying there was a time when the divine didn't have the human nature. And you can get into those sides of the conversation, what's the nature and whatnot. But the idea is there was a time there wasn't the human nature coinciding with the divine. Um, the problem is we're trying to understand, like, how is this not a change as it relates to the immutability of God and uh, the timelessness of God? Because you've got you, it, seemingly, there's a, there's a number of problems with the incarnation. Um, R.T. Mullen says in his book, he says, God lacks all physical and metaphysical composition. God has no parts or diversity in his essence. A strong do doctrine of Im immutability states God does not undergo any kind of change. Otherwise, God would not be timeless. Typically, this is taken to be God cannot change with regard to intrinsic or extrinsic properties. Of course, strictly speaking, a simple God has no properties. This is closely connected with a strong doctrine of impassibility whereby God cannot suffer nor be affected by anything outside of himself. God is perfect joy. Nothing outside of himself can diminish that joy nor affect him in any way, shape, or form. So here he says the incarnation dramatically impacts the way we think about God and it helps us to understand how God interacts with us. So... Um, I, I guess this is the question is that Will's bringing up is how does that relate to a change in God through the incarnation where the divine meets the human, the, the timeless meets the temporal, and these two are coinciding today. Like Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father right now in bodily form. He's timeless and temporal somehow. Chris, maybe you can unpack that for us. Um. That's a big, big, big question. Okay, um, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to give you an answer. It's, it's, it's probably, that's, that's too much and that's okay. The idea here that the problem we're having is the, the, the modern assumption of causality is wrong. That's, I can just put it that way. The modern, the way we think about causality and change is wrong. We think about causality in a physical sense of A, hits B, which causes C to move. And there's this, this change happens in the events for obviously deeply philosophical reasons. The proper thing to say is that in any cause and effect relationship, all of the change is in the effect. It is a matter of physics, modern physics, 
scientist has taught us that for every action, there's an equal opposite reaction. So if I hit a wall, it may not look like the, it may not look like uh, the, the wall moves, but it does in some sense. That's, that's maybe on a microscopic level, but it is simply a matter of in, in pro proper analysis of causality will tell us that all the changes in the effect. We've been talking a lot about time. It strikes me here that we never actually defined what time is, which is a big issue, right? Time is on the classical view, the before and after of a change. That's all time is. So if, if there are no changes, there's no time. All time is, is if you take any change, the before and the after, that's just what time is. So that means take that, what I just said, in a proper analysis of causality, all change is in the effect and not in the cause. So if God, if God himself is not changed, if there's no change in God, he just, he's the cause, he is not affected, then all of the temporal action is in the effect and none of it is in himself God. So there's no Actions of any kind constitute temporal change in himself, and that includes the incarnation. What happens in the incarnation? The technical word is assumed, which is that it's not so much that the divine nature is joined to the human nature, so that the divine nature now takes on a changed relationship. Rather, what happens is that the a divine person assumes a human nature, and that assumption takes place in the physical world. So the change is in the physical world. So just like that God causes the sun to rise in the physical world, but he himself is not changed. So God can bring about an assumption of human nature in the physical world, and that does not change himself. So you can get technical into the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union just means that in the divine person, there is the divine nature, but that divine nature did something. It assumed a a, a a human nature but that means necessarily it's it's in temporality and i feel like at that point i'm it's going to sound like a word salad because this is a like three giant issues in like a two-minute response <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's i had a friend of mine say it's easy to ask hard questions it's very very hard to give yeah. concise answers so i don't That's know if that helps point. at all but i i want to offer again the issue here is causality if you can just take that away that it, it, there are two big views of causality and the view that I'm defending and I think is the right view, regardless of your theological position, is that in any cause and effect relationship whatsoever, the change is in the effect, not the cause. The classic illustration of this, going back to Aristotle himself, is if a potter shapes his hand and then holds, you have, you've seen the movie Ghost, that how you hold your hand is what shapes the clay, right? The shape of your hand determines, that's the cause determines the shape, the effect determines the shape of the pot. And so that's just what cause and effect relationships are. The hand doesn't yeah. change, the pot does. So, so, so we have that on a grand scale with God in the world. So I probably complicated the whole conversation by kind of just tossing in as much as I can into uh, the incarnation in the conversation. But Will, if you wanted to simplify the things that, that have kind of been thrown in there as it relates to the incarnation and bring it down to one thing, as it relates to whether or not there's a change in God or specifically as it's related to discursive thought and generated knowledge in the incarnation, 
what do you think is the most important thing to bring up from your perspective that you may differ with Chris on that we could kind of iron out? Sure. I think that for me, I see the incarnation as affecting God in his own domain. That's going to be key here. Um, I, I was not aware of Chris's position on this until just now. So I, I, all I've had is two minutes. So maybe I misunderstood what he said, but it sounded like something in there was that this was happening kind of in the created universe, so to speak. Um, but biblically, I can only think of two, uh, I can only think of two examples off the top of my head, but I think they're enough where I, I think we see that the incarnation affects the divine uh, Godhead and Trinity and divine nature in God's own domain as well, not just in the created universe. And I'll, I'll read those really quick. So in Acts 7, and just to give a little context here, the ascension was the ascension, which is after the resurrection, happened in Acts chapter one. So Jesus Christ, Son of God, God the Son, has ascended to heaven. And in Acts seven, uh, Stephen, when he's being stoned, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then in verse fifty-six of Acts seven, it says. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And then so, so what I, how I interpret that as is that the is that this new person with a with a human nature and a divine nature, this this man, <laughs> this son of man is actually, you know, with God, the father. And then first Timothy two, um, which is a, you know, a verse that we're all familiar with. Verse 5, 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So 1 Timothy is obviously written way after Jesus was on earth, and it's actually telling us you know, who we're to pray to. And this one mediator between God and men is the man Christ Jesus. And, and this man Christ Jesus, I think, mm-hmm. exists right now in heaven, in God's domain. So that's kind of my position there. I, uh, I, I just want to say that I, uh, I, I, most classical theists, certainly myself, and I think the vast majority of classical theists will say that the incarnation is permanent, uh, that the man, Jesus Christ, continues to exist in his bodily form and will for all eternity. I think uh, to strengthen that case, again, 1 Corinthians 15, we don't know we will will be or that's john we don't know we will be but we will be like him that's john and um it's some sense the the new creation is going to be in his image and it's going to be physical creation and so there is a physical world that we are looking forward to there's some really beautiful theology here in the the incarnation does so much more than just give us a type fulfillment of the levitical sacrificial system although it does that it somehow raises the order of the created limited world into the divine nature itself. And you can take that too far, like the Eastern Orthodox do is called theosis and somehow we become God. We shouldn't do, go that far. But no, I'm going to say with you that yes, there, you can say that the created order, it, God still has his assumed nature. That doesn't mean 
in my reading, that the divine nature changed. It just means that the created order is such that God is not only in it as creator, but also in it as a person who also has assumed a nature as well. And I just think that shows how much that God is pouring of himself into creation. And I think it's profoundly beautiful and it's the stuff of deep, deep, deep reflection. People who think this is all academic, I think are missing what classical theism is about. There's some heavy stuff here to meditate on. That's good. Will, do you have anything you want to add on that? Yeah, I would just clarify one thing, which is important because this is this can be easily missed, is that my argument that the incarnation requires time is not an argument that the divine nature changed. It's it's an argument of uh, a divine nature without a human nature and then a divine nature with a human nature. And so scripturally, when we go to the Old Testament and it talks about, you know, the son of God at the right hand of the father, I would say that that is uh, the son, that, that, that is the second person of the Trinity without a human nature, without any relationship whatsoever to a human nature. And then when we get to the New Testament, post-incarnation, post-resurrection, crucifixion, and then post-ascension, when it talks about, you know, the second person of the Trinity at the right hand of the Father, but refers to him as a man or son of man, that is now uh, a, a person of the Trinity that does have a relationship with the human nature. So in my mind, I do see a clear kind of past, present, future relationship, yeah. temporal so here's what I see when I think of the timeless God versus the temporal God idea in the incarnation and how those two interact in the hypostasis. The question that I have is, and, and maybe Chris, you can answer this. I know it may be something we can't answer really quick here tonight, but I think it's relevant to the conversation. In regard to the incarnation, whether God actually does experience a change, whether there is a change in the Trinity somehow where there was this man in heaven at the right hand of God the Father prior to the ascension and, and now after the ascension, he's there. Whether that's a, Regardless, this is the problem that I've got. So the humanity of the Son is temporal. He exists in temporality. Yet... The divinity of the Son at the same time exists atemporally. So you have this atemporal and temporal mm -hmm. co coinciding, like in this now mm -hmm. moment. Like the Son exists and experiences one moment from uh, one from one moment to the next. Yet he also doesn't. Mm -hmm. So it just yep. gets confusing for me, Chris. Maybe you can unpack that. And uh, we'll, uh, I will. We'll I, I think I can do that quickly uh okay. i would just suggest that that is a this is a special case and it's really a nice case a, ni a special and nice case study of the much larger and general problem of how an atemporal god acts in time if we allow that an atemporal timeless eternal god simply by virtue of his being brings about effects in the now and as a result of him and that's what now is is that god brings out the effect so there is no change in God. The change is in the present. If you allow that, and it 
could be something from the rising of the sun to the, me digesting an apple. It doesn't matter. The moment you allow that an atemporal God can bring about present effects and still be atemporal and the effect still be temporal, then you have your model for understanding the incarnation because all the incarnation is, is a human being who in fact is uh, he's human. God is human insofar as he, uh, he truly has a human nature, but all that humanity is necessarily temporal. And so the divine uh, is simply bringing about all of the temporal aspects through that human nature. And yet the divine is still, the divine nature is still divine and atemporal and the human nature is still human and temporal the same way as, as I am. The difference in Jesus and, and, and his relationship to God and my relationship to God is one of closeness. Um, my, I am related to God through Christ. He is related to God be Christ because he is God. Uh, but it's just one of closeness. And that's why the hypostatic union is important. But it's just so, a special case of the same problem. And Will, I know you want to, I, I want to, I want to keep this conversation between you guys, but this has brought up something that I've been thinking about and to have both of you here to, to toss around two sides of, of how you see the incarnation is beneficial to me personally, maybe to the audience as well. To me, I think this gets into the realm of Nestorianism. It's like we've created this fourth person of the Trinity where the divine and the human are now so separate that the divine didn't actually like become flesh. He he and he like got into he be he he was in the man. He wasn't the man. So it's like we've created these two natures that become these two persons that the one can't just not touch the other. He's like inside the other, like the God. It sounds like oneness when they try to describe the incarnation. It's like, well, God was in the man. It was the spirit of God in the man doing these miracles, etc. It wasn't the man. So it's like we've separated the humanity from the divine so much that it's like, well, now it's, it's almost unrecognizable to me. But Chris, maybe you can kind of touch on that. How, how is this not Nestorianism and and um, as in, maybe I'm getting off topic here, but I'm trying to understand how the change in the incarnation is not this change that I'm seeing it to be. I, I will offer, but I saw Will smile. I don't know if he had a thought before I, because I already said something a moment ago. Will, do you have something you want to add before I address the Nestorianism issue? No, no, go for it. I think that'd be great. So, holy cow, that's a giant. I hope my internet holes. That was a huge thunder on my side. <laughs> anyway, uh, I've made God mad. No. <laughs> so, no, it's, so the essence of Nestorianism, and I will, I mean, Josh, you pointed this out, is that there are two persons. All we have to say, and I think this is really important, is the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is two natures, and I think, wish, I wish Christians took this more seriously. Two natures, one person. The person is divine. That's really important. The person, and I, I think a lot of Christians make it, a lot of Christians in their in their desire to try to get, safeguard the humanity and or divinity of Christ end up with something worse. They end up with something like Arianism, which are what happens is if you co-mingle the natures so that he is, so that his humanity and deity are now, he, they're mixed together, you actually have a commingled nature that is neither human nor divine. And so that human Jesus now becomes uh, a demigod of some sorts. He's a created, he's a created creaturely deity kind of thing. Well, that's, that's not the Christian view. What we have to say is there's two 
natures. There is the divine nature, which is all the things I've said from the beginning. Goes back to you have to every remember the house started this. Everything cannot go beyond Genesis one in terms of what we have to say about God. So there is the Genesis one uh, divine nature above and beyond all. But then there is a human nature, which is a created nature. So you have the created, you have the uncreated nature and the created nature. Now, how do they combine? They do not combine in a common nature. The hypostatic union, it is not a uh, a substantial union. It is a hypostatic union. Hypostatic, hypostatic a hypostasis is a person. The two natures are combined in the one person, and the person is a divine person, not a human person. So he is a divine person who assumes a human nature, not a human who also is in some sense God. And that's really important. If you want to avoid Nestorianism, you have to say he is a divine person who assumed a human nature, which means all of the temporal interactions of the human nature by necessity happen in temporality. But he's a divine person. Okay, so, Will, so the connection what do you wanna... is in the person, not the not the not the nature. Well, what do you what do you want to say to that um, as far as it relates to uh, whether or not there's a change in God that how it affects divine simplicity? Um, how would you respond to Chris and what he's just said? Yeah. So yeah. So Josh, you bring up a really good point here. I. I I struggle to see where there's a union at all if we're going to argue that the divine nature is outside of creation, is atemporal, and the human nature is inside of creation and is temporal. That, that to me seems like as far apart as possible. So, so that's my first struggle. The second thing I would like to state is that if we're not careful, as you mentioned, Josh, we, we do create a fourth person of the Trinity when we talk and we say things like, well, that was Jesus talking as a human or that was Jesus talking as God in that instance. The reality is there's only one person here. Yeah. And, and because there's only one person, that means there's only one will. And so that's super important. There, there's not acting and willing as a human and acting and willing as God. There's only one person and one will. And so all of that has to be you know, understood and uh, recognized when we're making these arguments. And, and again, I, I well, may I, I just said this already, I, I've just never interjected. I've never interjected. Can I interject one thing here, just real quick, and get back to it? In the classical view, and I'm not talking classical theism anymore per se. I'm talking the classical view of Christianity. We're talking the soteriology that the Church hammered out the first 400 years, the creeds, and most people agrees. Christ has two natures: human and divine. He also has two wills. There is a human will and a divine will. There's two intellects, a human intellect and divine intellect. So that in the person, one person, this is why it's not Nestorianism. There's actually a name for the heresy. It's Apollinarianism. There is, if you, if you say that, that uh, the divine person has on a man suit, but no human will and no human intellect, you're denying that Christ is truly a human, and therefore the, the implication for that is he can't truly be our sacrifice. So it's really important that Christ has a full human nature. We have a will in virtue of our nature. We have an intellect in virtue of our nature because Christ has two natures, two wills. He has two intellects. The person of Christ has two wills and two intellects. The, the Trinity is a different story. There's only one will in the intellect. There's only one intellect in the, there's only one will in the Trinity. But the person of Christ the tradition of the church has always been, and this is all the church fathers, 
uh, if you care about that at all. Christ has two wills and two natures. That is standard theology. Now, you can reject standard theology. I'm just telling you that that's the, that is the view that we held, we've had since almost literally day one. Okay, yeah, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't expect that interjection, but I think it's great. Uh, I think that that <laughs> so, would sorry. be difficult. No, no, it's great. Yeah, I, I, think, I think arguing that the second person of the Trinity has two wills would be difficult, if not impossible, biblically. And, and I, I struggle personally to see how you can have one person in two wills. I, I think two wills, if you kind of really dive into that and kind of unpack what that what that means would end up with two persons it sounds like that we need to do this again where the subject is christology <laughs> i agree christology is huge <laughs> like, yeah let's 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 listen do a two-hour podcast that's that. hard yeah there is a really and i, I we have to stop here there's a re there's a reason that the church spent the first 300 years dealing with Christology. It is not easy. The Trinity comes out of an understanding of Christology, and most Christians start with the Trinity, and their Christology is woefully, they don't understand what they're talking about. And I, just, I, know, I know it's being a jerk when I say that, but most Christians, they do it the wrong way. And, but the church historically started with Christ. We got the Trinity because we hammered out what it means for Christ to be God. That led to the Trinity, not the other way around. Okay. Um, so let's, I, I think that we've covered a lot of ground here tonight. We're at an hour and 45 minutes, not counting the other two times that we had to restart, the, <laughs> restart this thing. Um, but I, I think that if we could kind of, um, give concluding remarks, like what, what are we going away with here? There is a lot that we could talk about with Christology. These things, like for me, um, having conversations like this and challenging the thoughts that I have, um, about how I see the incarnation, how I see God's interaction with his creation. Um, these sorts of conversations, they challenge me. They make me want to think about God more. They make me want to dive into the word of God more. They, they make me want to talk to people about God more because the conversations I have about God, I think, are probably the most... Uh, they're probably the best conversations that you can have with somebody because... Uh, because if, if you don't challenge your beliefs, then it's, it's just a way for me to grow. So I appreciate you, Chris. I appreciate you, Will, challenging some of these things that, that I have and how I think about God and his interaction, inter interaction with creation. Um, but if, if you could sum up, Will, your position and takeaway from, from the conversation tonight as it relates to God's discursive thought and God's generated knowledge, and uh, kind of how the incarnation would tie into uh, both of these sorts of things and have an impact on your view. How would you want to leave the audience? Yeah, yeah. Th thanks again, Josh, for hosting. And Chris, thanks again for uh, participating and all, all the work you've done in, in the body of Christ. Um, yeah, so I, I think really when you read about these topics and you, you watch these, you know, discussions and you know, watch debates and th things of that nature uh, surrounding these things, it really is going to come down to, you know, how you're interpreting scripture. Because, you know, if we didn't have scripture, uh, the, the, the debates would be, you know, super interesting. I think there'd be great arguments on both sides. But now that we have scripture, we have what God has wanted to give us, to help us understand who he is, the history of the world, um, you know, 
his creation and, and his interaction with, with, with us throughout history, it's going to come down to how you interpret that. And so understanding hermeneutics, understanding, you know, just the time frame that these things were written, you know, the type of language that they used, even getting into original languages and, and understanding those, at least to some sense, is going to be super, super important. And so, you know, again, we disagree. People are always going to disagree. These types of discussions are, are edifying, I think, for everyone. They're edifying for me, presumably for Chris, for you, Josh, and then also for the audience. Yeah. And so, again, you know, I in that these verses in the Bible show God, you know, obtaining new information, uh, contemplating, you know, what's happening and transpiring before he acts, God having emotions, God acting, you know, in succession, in in time, you know, I interpret all of those kind of as at face value and uh, come to, you know, where I'm currently at theologically, which would be, you know, something very, you know, opposite of classical theism. So hopefully this was uh, beneficial for all. That's good, Will. I appreciate that. I appreciate you and your input that you've brought to the conversation tonight. And same for you as well, Chris. Chris, what are some kind of concluding remarks that you want to leave the audience with uh, to summarize your statement of all these things we've talked about tying into uh, and finally with the incarnation? I appreciate your your take on this because you're bringing the historical, like here's what Christianity has taught for since the beginning kind of things, like with the two wills. Those, the, Will, I'm like you, man. I'm like, I don't really see how... God can have two wills, not have a change, like it without adding a fourth person. Like it, it, in I see like God, God hungered, He thirsted. Like, well, was the divine nature really hungering and thirsting? Was it the human nature? Like, is this the human will? Anyway, so mm-hmm. those things get confusing for me. I I try to iron those things out in my own mind the best way I can, and this is one of the ways I do it by having conversations with people who think about it and have studied it more than me. Uh, but Chris, how would you how would you leave it with the audience? And we'll try to get a, at least a couple of these questions from you guys in the audience before we wrap I, it up. I would I would say that the questions you're asking are exactly the kind of questions the church asked for the fir- for the first several hundred years as this stuff was developing, and it's the questions that Christians should still be asking every single day. What I really want to make the strong distinction, and, and this I think will help highlight why I think in my theology the incarnation is so important. Throw away everything I said. This is going to make you really happy. We'll throw away everything I said about simplicity and everything about timelessness. The really important thing um, as, a, as a former now hospice chaplain is that when you go to bed at night or when you face struggle or suffering in this world, when you are living in life, you need to know that the God of this world is for you. This God of this world is at your side and before you and behind you and that you have a real relationship with him the god of aristotle and the god of greek philosophy is nothing more than an intellectual framework that does nothing for us so i want to distinguish between how our thoughts about god and philosophical speculations as true as they may be and the revelation of god god chose to reveal himself in a personal manner because we need a person that's what job is Job asks a hard question about suffering, and the end, he doesn't get a philosophical lecture. He gets God. He gets who God is. And so the scripture reveals God in a highly personal terms. It doesn't answer the philosophical question. Then God is not content to leave us, leave us with the set of teachings. of a. He takes on the form of a person. 
He literally becomes a human person. So the relationship with God is important. So what I want to say to you, Will, is the work that you're doing, even if I think you, you I think you draw incorrect metaphysical implications, the exegetical work you're doing is basically correct. And it is important that that's the level that God intends us to relate to him. Now, after that work, you then go on and ask the metaphysical implications of putting it all together. There are benefits for that beyond, and it's not useless. The reason we have the incarnation is because when we think about it, we go, wait a minute, but God is beyond everything. And so how can I know this God? Scripture has made this promise highly personal. How can I, how can I know God? What? That's why the incarnation suddenly becomes essential because it is in Christ. No one has seen God, John says, but Christ has revealed him. And revealed him is a very strong word there. And so I would suggest what the incarnation does for us is it takes this God beyond knowing and it fulfills this desire to know that the scriptures on page one begin with. So I encourage the audience, don't confuse the philosophical speculations of Chris and the church with the God of scripture. But take those speculations seriously because the scriptures help us relate to who he is. Perfect. I appreciate that, Chris. I appreciate you, Will. And uh, if we can, audience, I'll try to get to a couple of your questions. And uh, I don't know, maybe five or ten minutes of audience Q&A. If you want to put your questions in there, now would be the time. I see a few in here also. We've covered a lot of ground tonight. I think Christology is definitely something that um, I would like to personally spend more time on and have conversations with uh, with people like you two on that. So anyways, okay, so Craig Fisher asks Chris, Chris, can you define the difference between nature and person? Nature is the set of capacities that we have in virtue of what we are. Nature is what makes you are. What makes a tree a tree is its nature. A dog, a dog is nature. A person, a human, human is it's because of human nature. God, a God because of his divine nature. The person is the agent. So not all natures are persons. Dogs are not persons. Trees are not persons. Humans are persons. However, angels are persons and God is a person. So persons have natures. And the, and the capacities you have in virtue of your nature, you have because of your nature. So a person, for example, has a will. A human person has a will because they have the, you have a, a nature, you have a human will by nature. I don't have a will because I'm a person. I have a will because I'm a, I have a human nature. Dogs don't bark because, because his name is Fido. He, dark, he, he barks because the dog has the nature of a dog and dogs bark by nature. So that's the person v. nature. So to kind of piggyback, okay, Will, I, I guess I should get your take on this. Will, what's your take on that? Um, these are, these are very difficult issues, obviously. Um, you know, understanding natures, what they are, um, trying to understand what the divine nature is. I mean, that's at the heart of so many of these discussions. And then also what persons are. I think it's important to always start with God, right? right? God existed before we did. And so it's easy to start with who we are and, and how we experience things, but then I think that could easily put us off on, on a wrong path. And so I think it's just good in these, these conversations. Start with God. It's a person. Okay, that's the beginning. That's the foundation of what a person is. Talking about the divine nature, etc. Okay, so um, now Craig Fisher brings up another question here. Chris, I want to get your take on this because I just thought of this. 
And he says, if there's two wills, there's two persons. Okay, I know that's not a question, but I've had conversations with oneness folks. And if I think about like humanity, like myself, I would have one will. But if we think about Jesus' human nature, that'd be one will. We say Jesus has two wills. He has the divine will and the human will. Now, if I think of myself, now that I'm a Christian, I have, I have the spirit of Christ inside me. I have the divine will inside me. So what would be the difference between the divine will and the human will inside myself and the divine will and the human will inside Christ? Because the divine will that you have in yourself is not a substantial part of your, to use a philosophical word, ontology. You are still Josh Gibbs, the human being that you were. What that means is that because you have a relationship with a person outside of yourself, that is the Holy Spirit and Christ, therefore through him, um, you have access to his will in, an, in a more intimate way than you have anything else. And so that's you, you have access to his will in that sense. For Christ, again, so go back to what I said, you have a human will because you are, ha because you have a human nature, not because you're a, not because so you, Josh, don't have a will because you're Josh, a person. You have a will because you are a human person and human persons have wills. So God, when he took, has, it being a, God's divine nature has a will. That's just the divine nature has a will. That's fine. I think nobody would deny the divine nature has a will. Likewise, human natures have wills. And so when the divine nature takes on a human nature, then what happens is that divine person has a divine nature, ergo a will, but also has a human nature, ergo a human will. To say that you'd only have one will is to mix the natures and say that, that new nature is no longer human nor divine. And that's a heresy in the old sense of the word, I'm not accusing him of her yeah. being a heretic. That's just in the old sense of the word. Um, Will, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, sorry, we're not going to have time to get into this, but I think I, I would be remiss to not mention it. I think talking about multiple wills quickly gets difficult with divine simplicity, which says that God is not composed of parts. So I think it's possible if we were to hash that out that divine simplicity would say, that there have there there can only be one will. And, and you're right. We can't get into it. I will only say I will only say that that is one of the hardest objections. And I think I may have suggested as much when I talked about the Trinity and the in the book that we can all offer answers towards that. I think the answers are sufficient. You may not, and that's entirely fair. I think that's probably one of the hardest issues. I think they're answers, but they're they are hard. I'm free. I freely admit that. That's good. Um, okay, so Jordan Thornburg says, if one presupposes a priori, God cannot change his mind. He can never exegetically arrive there. Presuppositions really need to be addressed. And I think this kind of piggybacked off an earlier uh, question that was to you, Chris. I can't find that comment, but the question was, uh, something along the lines of, do you, does classical theism in general have to presuppose uh, that time was created and that God is timeless by extension in order for this to all work? Uh, I would say that it doesn't presuppose it. It is the result of independent exegetical thinking gets us to God's timelessness 
and independent philosophical reasoning gets us to God. So it's a place where natural revelation and special revelation coincide. If you, it's, it's, we've been here for a long time, so if somebody came on late, that's why I opened my discussion with Genesis 1. And if we, just as a matter of analysis, look at if we understand that time is a part of the created order, and I think we kind of have to, then you end up with a timeless God, at least sans creation. And so at a minimum, we should say God was timeless sans creation. Will, do you have anything on that? Um, I, I think the question you were looking for is actually right now the third from the bottom. Oh. Jordan said, what could the Bible say to show God is temporal or is it not possible a priori? I, I think that's a good question for Chris. And I think that was directed to Chris. So do you want to answer that? I, I suppose God could offer some sort of go into a philosophical speculation of, of what he is, because this is what I want to go back to again. I'm, I've never that God's atemporality is something that we deduce from what scripture does say about him. So but probably the thing to do is less to ask the Bible to engage in philosophical speculation, which, again, I tried in my remarks to clarify the difference in theology and philosophy, and I'm trying to be very serious in that distinction. Probably the better thing is just to ask scriptures not to say things that require us to believe in divine atemporality. So, for example, just don't tell us God is the creator of heavens and earth. Tell us the way the Egyptians did it, that God found and a world and then through some means used pre-existing material if god is a part of the pre-existing physical order in some sense then god is temporal so don't just don't tell me that god created ex nihilo and you have a temporal god well what would your response be to that does god have to uh does time have to be a created thing in order for creation ex nihilo to be true no no my position is that actually that time is is required to create anything. <laughs> uh, creation is something going from non-existence to existence, which is a before and after succession. So I actually look at time as a prerequisite to create. Perfect, okay. Uh, Chris, if you wanted to have a quick response to that, you feel free. If not, I'll jump to the next question. Uh, I already have my little spiel on causality. Go rewind yeah. it and find that. Awesome, okay. Numbers 2319 teaches God doesn't change his mind. Will, what's your response to that? And then I'll get your take, Chris. Yeah, so if we, if we interpret a, a verse in a way that's going to cause literally dozens of massive contradictions, I think that's a good starting point to maybe look at other interpretations. And so the story in Numbers 23 uh, is, a, is a situation where God is stating he's not going to change his mind. Um, People like myself who believe God does change his mind, we don't say that he always does. It's completely, you know, contextual and situational. So in that situation, a, a false prophet is involved and, you know, uh, someone's trying to get God to do something which would be, you know, unrighteous and immoral. And that's not who God is. And so at that moment, uh, God did not have a reason to pull his blessing away from from Israel. And so he says, no, I'm not going to do what you're saying and change my mind for, for no reason whatsoever. Awesome. Let's make that the last question, Chris. How would you respond? And that will sum up our discussion for tonight. I'll summarize it by actually agreeing with Will and say that uh, just as I have said several times, steel manning 
is important. Um, and I have said that we need to be careful with um, deciding of language. Uh, if it's if the language is describing God as he changing his mind without explaining it away, uh, the, the same thing is true here. People who believe in classical theism do not need to use these verses like this. Well, see, this proves God doesn't change his mind. Think, same thing as James. That's not what it's talking about. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that, that there's an, an, an ethical kind of claim in that particular context. Same in the book of James. Neither James nor Numbers are making philosophical speculations about God. So we need to be careful in our hermeneutics to distinguish between are we making theological claims or are we making philosophical claims? And the answer is almost always a theological claim. So let the theological claim be theological as it relates to people. And then after you've done that work, then go back and do your systematic theology and your philosophical speculation after that. That's good. Well, I've got to say, guys, both Chris, Will, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, we've had this kind of in the making for a while now, and, and you guys have been patient. We've, we've worked it out. So thank you for working through all the technical difficulties as well. I haven't done a podcast in a while on my own show. Um, so working out the kinks on these things is is kind of reminding me why I don't do podcasts. I haven't done any in a while. Maybe I'm going to uh, get back into it and start doing more. I know I've had you guys on Facebook and different platforms that have told me like, hey, I want to see more content. And I'm going like, hey, uh, give me some time to create these things and schedule the interviews and, and whatnot. But conversations like this, guys, they're invaluable to me. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Will, for coming on and talking about, uh, talking about God, talking about Jesus, the incarnation, and the interaction that God has with his creation. I don't know what could be more important. But Chris, thanks again. Um, Will, thanks again. I hope you guys have a good night. Thank you. So, thanks. all right, guys. Hey, God bless you all. Thanks much. Right. That is uh, going to be a wrap. I'm trying to cut over here. And uh, that is it for tonight. So we've talked about God's discursive thought, God's generated knowledge, whether or not he does have discursive thought, whether or not he, he does have generated knowledge. These conversations are important. I think the way we think about God is important. Uh, thank you for sticking with me through the technical difficulties. I'm going to re-edit the title of the video that I actually went through. The two times that I tried to do it before, uh, we had to restart it because it, it completely shut the stream off. Don't know why that happened. Uh, but anyways, if you like this stuff, please like it, share it, subscribe. And if we could get to that 1,000 mark on the subs on YouTube, that'd be awesome. Um, but in the meantime, guys, God bless. I hope you think about God more. I hope that it impacts your world and the way that you see God interacting with creation and the way that he wants you to as well. God bless and have a great night. We'll catch up soon.